I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Brain HQ is an online training system with 26 exercises that hone your attention, memory, brain speed, and more. They really work. How do I know? Because researchers at institutions from the Mayo Clinic to Yale have studied them and shown real, measurable benefits to the brain, like 10 years' improvement in memory. 10 years. Brain HQ adapts to your unique brain. As with physical exercise, brain exercise works best when it's at the right level to challenge you personally in the areas you need most. Brain HQ constantly adapts to your performance to make sure you're training at the optimum level for your brain. You can get a 10% discount on a Brain HQ subscription for finding out about it here. Just go to brainhq.com slash political wire. Again, that's brainhq.com slash political wire. And now to our conversation. Forget the Koch brothers or super PACs or even President Obama. The most watched player in the 2014 midterms just might be a computer program called Leo. Leo is the always-on, data-crunching, poll-adjusting, Senate-forecasting model used by the New York Times. Each day, Leo takes the latest polls and historical data from around the country, blends in other information like fundraising and national polling, and then simulates all 36 Senate races 250 times. And from that, each day Leo speaks about which party will win the midterm's grand prize, U.S. Senate control. So, following several big weeks of primary voting, what does Leo have to say, and why should we believe it? Nate Cohn is a reporter at the New York Times' new hotspot, The Upshot, where he covers elections, pollings, and demographics. Nate, thanks for joining me. So, do you wake up each morning and, first thing, check out what Leo has to say? (laughs) Not at this point in the race. The polls aren't coming in too quickly, and the needle just doesn't move as often um, as maybe it will later on. Uh, But I check in you know, once a day, maybe. And it's always right there at the front of the Upshot homepage. Yeah. So you've always kind of been a, a data guy, haven't you? Is that is that accurate? Is it uh, always kind of fascinated you? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, I don't know how far back you mean. And certainly in my journalistic career, that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't checked your first grade records, right? I mean, is there something uh-huh. back <laughs> that I need to know about? You, uh, no, I, you, I started as a science guy, I guess. Oh, a science guy. Okay. I thought you were going to, you know, lay on me that, yeah, in fact, Chris, I've been, you know, uh, programming since uh, first grade. <laughs> and you know, if you haven't read about it, then you've really got uh, problems. I mean, we're kind of in, I mean, so bringing the data and the journalism together, we're, we're in a bit of a heyday for the, the merging of the two, don't you think? I think that's right. I think that's particularly true in politics where uh, there's a really rich set of data on elections that goes back you know, for the entire history of the country and where it's possible to glean some really compelling lessons about the relationship between the outcome of these races and, say, economic growth. Um, and we can also go back and look at public polling. And that gives us a whole bunch of information about the state of the race as it is. And as these data have become available on the Internet, more and more people are tapping into it. So let's talk about Leo and and the model itself. And I, I know, or I, I believe at least, that you didn't actually create the model, right? There, I think there were two others at the New York Times who may have literally designed the model, but but you you know you use it and you report off the data. And so, what, what background can you give me and, and explain just in terms of you know how the model was generated, the range of factors? How, how does that all get 
tweaked as it's being put together? You know, how, how do you how do you test t- such a thing um, as you're going through it? Particularly, I mean, this is the first go round, I think, for this particular version. I used to, I think, you use Nate Silver's model at the New York Times, and, and so kind of how how did the whole thing get put together, to your knowledge? Um, well, the model was constructed by Amanda Cox and Josh Katz, who are two extremely talented colleagues of mine, and it was really fun to watch them develop the model over time. They took a, a strictly empirical approach to developing it. They really went through the data and asked questions of it. They said, okay, what has what helps explain these elections best? Is it the president's approval rating or is it the generic ballot? Is it economic growth? Is it incumbency? And how can they put those things together to produce the best um, result? And you know, to a certain extent, those are guided. Those choices and those questions are guided by theoretical principles, right? We don't go and ask it whether random, you know, metrics out in the universe like whether the Seahawks are in the Super Bowl uh, has anything to do with the outcome of the Senate. Um, it asks. So we we went and asked questions that we would expect uh, have bearing on the race. And over time, as we tested more variables, uh, we learned more and more about what helps explain Senate elections. And at this point, it's Oh, the public polling is a very important part of predicting the outcome. It's already fairly accurate by the stage, in part because things like incumbency and fundraising and the partisanship of the state are already well reflected in the public opinion polls. But there are other variables like fundraising and um, the national conditions like the generic ballot that are also factored into the model. And how do you kind of test it as you're going along? I mean, you, you, you know, there's a sense that the, the numbers that Leo is putting out and it puts out the, you know, where, where does the race stand um, every day based on all that data that goes in and all these national polls. Um, but, but I guess it hasn't really been tested through an actual national election as, as of yet. So how do you, you know, where does the confidence come from or, and, and how do you know? I mean, do you, did, did you kind of stress test it against, previous elections? How does, how does that confidence get developed? That's actually exactly how it works. So we can say, okay, uh, suppose that we're in 2004 and we have uh, the various relationships that we saw between 1990 and 1992, between the polls and the outcome and fundraising and the outcome, how well would the model have done? Um, and we can do the same thing for, for all of the recent Senate elections. And it gives us a pretty good sense of how well it works at what stages in the race and how well we can expect it to work on election day. And if we had been using this model, say in 2004 or 2012, it would have, you know, nailed almost all the races. There only would have been, I think, four races that it would have gotten wrong on election day, mainly because the public polling would have been a bit off. And at this stage in the race, it, it works fairly well, but hardly perfectly. And that's why when you look at Leo, you see that in every state, there's in every competitive state at least, there's quite a bit of uncertainty because at this stage, it would in the, in the races that appear close now, you often see it go both ways by either way by the end. Yeah, as I played around with the the model and and you know, I mean that spin, what is it, spin this or spin now uh-huh. button? Yeah, which you know, by the way, you know, has can just take up hours of my day just <laughs> clicking the button over and over. So, you know, thank you for nothing on that. Um, but but it really does show you how, you know, one spin of the dial, you know, will give you a result. And and sure, maybe if all the cards fall in those ways on that, you know, if that happened to have been election day, maybe it falls that way. But you really got to do it, whatever, 250,000 times, which luckily I, I haven't you know, gotten to yet, but you really have to do it over and over and over again, and then count all of those outcomes to to get a true sense of of what the you know what the predicted outcome would be. Is that right? 
That's absolutely right. And I don't think people properly appreciate how much uncertainty there really is at this point in the race. You know, there are a hundred Senate races that happen every three election cycles, right? And so we would expect that 99 to one propositions will happen with some regularity. And indeed they have happened in 2006, you know, George Allen probably would have been considered something like a 99 to one, 98, one fate, 98, two favorite at this point in the race. And he goes on to lose when he makes a big mistake and calling a, an operative following him, Makaka, and then the national environment goes against him um, in October or after the Foley scandal and all of that allows him to barely lose. And those things happen. So when you, you know, when you spin the wheel and something random happens, it's, it really is reflecting the unforeseen events that not only can happen, but really do. And we can point to them happening in the past. Yeah, pretty hard to factor in empirically for the, you know, odds of a candidate saying something, you know, insane, right? Well, there's no, there's no way to, in any particular race, say, oh, well, you know, Dick Durbin has a 4% chance of saying something terribly offensive while, you know, Jeff Merkley has, you know, a 7% chance of saying something offensive. But what we can say is that, you know, in races where an incumbent has um, this type of advantage this long before an election, they win this percent of the time. And when we look at the, those instances when they're losing, we can see that it's mainly because of things that are terribly unexpected, like um, something like Makaka happening. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, there's still uh, there's still the room for that, which of course is uh, uh, you know a great deal of what makes it all interesting. Leo really seems to focus on, and I think that I think that you do too, in terms of your reporting and your um, you know how you kind of think about polls and and which type of polling. And, and I've read some of your commentary on that. Um, you know, which which type of polling you really have a little bit more faith in versus others. Um, but but you really try to focus on a likely voter rather than a registered voter. Um, let's just attack that part first. Um, mm-hmm. Is that right? I mean, kind of talk to me about likely voter versus registered voters. And, and I th- you know, you tell me if I have this wrong, but your bias towards wanting to know what likely voters are, are thinking as opposed to registered voters. I think that's basically right. I think that at this stage in the race, the universe of registered voters is far broader than the group of people that will actually turn out in a midterm election. There, there are you know, maybe 170 million Americans who are registered to vote. I, and, you know, that, don't quote me on that exactly, but it's something up there. And, you know, in the end, I think turnout in this election will probably be around 100 million. And the people who don't show up are typically young and non-white voters. And those are voters that um, favor Democrats by wide margins. And so when you look at a poll of registered voters, you're including a lot of voters that are disposed towards Democrats who probably won't show up on Election Day. And as a result, um, I'm most focused on polls that are reflecting the, the universe of likely voters, a whiter electorate than the one we saw in 2012 and an older electorate than we saw in 2012. And Leo is looking at the same thing. It is actually adjusting every poll of registered voters downwards for Democrats. And it's, it, if you have a poll in North Carolina that shows a tied race, it goes ahead and assumes that actually Hagan's down three. And that estimate is based, again, on you know how historically – there's been a relationship between the registered voter polls and the actual results in these elections. On the other hand, it's possible that that, re- that that historical trend won't hold. It could either be more significant, as it was in 2010, when there was a really substantial drop-off, or it could be less. In 2006, for instance, Democrats fared quite well among older white voters, and consequently, there wasn't as much of a penalty for young and non-white voters staying home. What about, what about state polling and, and where we are in the election cycle. So, so at this point, 
Um, you know, you've got state polls that are that are in the model, of course. Um, I would assume as we get closer to, you know, the actual election day, as opposed to this primary season, the state polling data will become, you know, more and more representative of what likely would happen. Of course, there's always room for error. Does the model kind of evolve as time evolves? Will state polling perhaps get a, a greater amount of weight in, in the model as you get closer to election day, or there's just too much going on and, and you can't really simplify it so much? Um, I think that's what, right. I think two things happen. One is that the polls themselves receive more weight as we approach the election. The second thing that happens is that the uncertainty about the polls goes down. So you can imagine, for instance, that at this stage, a candidate with a three-point lead has a 60% chance of winning. But by election day, that three-point lead might, involve, might mean that you have a 90-plus percent chance of winning. And so, you, so although the overall point estimate might not change, our confidence in that outcome will increase. Nate, I want to ask you uh, more questions about Leo. I want to turn this a little bit to your own reporting and what you're seeing out there and how that compares uh, to what Leo shows. Um, We've got other questions about uh, Senate control and what direction that's going. But first, I just want to share with our listeners a couple of words about our terrific sponsor, Stamps.com. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. Listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So tell me something. Why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it 24-7. The biggest reason we use Stamps.com at Political Wire is to avoid going to the post office. Gone are the days of waiting in a line for 20 minutes while one harried clerk tries to deal with an increasingly grumpy line of customers. You don't have to do that anymore with Stamps.com. Right now, use our promo code WIRE for this special offer. A no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in WIRE, W-I-R-E. That's Stamps.com. Enter WIRE. So, Nate, as of today, uh, Leo shows that Democrats have a 57 percent chance of holding on to Senate control. Of course, that number may shift for listeners depending on when they download this podcast. But regardless, that, that's a fairly aggressive number, at least by by my reading. You, you'll tell me if you think I'm off. But before we get into the specifics of how you got how we got to that number, when you saw it and when you see it, what, what do you think? Does that jibe with your own reporting? Well, first, let me say that I do think you're off that it's aggressive. Um, you know, a 57% chance is really not all that much. If I, I mean, if I give you a coin that had a 57% chance of flipping heads, it would take you a long time before you realized that I gave you a coin that was messed up. And if you flipped that coin, it would end up um, with the Republicans winning, or sorry, with tails winning, uh, you know, a very significant proportion of the time. So I think that, this, that when, when I see a 57% overall, you know, chance for Democrats winning. I think that's basically a toss-up. This is not the 2012 presidential election or something. So, so, so my interpretation was aggressive, not the number itself. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Um, okay. You know, that's... I look at I look at 57 and I say, 
there's a whole lot left. And this is a true toss-up, and it can really go either way. 43% is a big number. In, and in, in a way, May, that wasn't true yeah. in 2012. Tell, tell me why. Um, I mean, why, 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 you know, in a way that wasn't in 2012? You know, on Election Day in 2012, President Obama had a 93% chance of winning, according to the 538 model. And our model would probably be slightly more aggressive than that, um, if for no other reason it has the benefit of an additional year of data. Um, and, you know, a, you know, 7% chance is, is pretty slim. A 40% chance, 43% chance of the Republicans taking the Senate um, is quite significant. Okay, got it, got it. Um, it there, was, there was a shift in the model as you were kind of looking, and maybe this means this, this shift and isn't so significant at this point. It, it mm-hmm. just it, it looks uh, you know somewhat impressive when you're looking at the graphing on, on you know of Leo and of the day to day predictions. But ba- there was kind of a shift in mid May when, uh, according to Leo, you know Republicans had kind of had a greater chance. Uh, or a greater probability, I should say, of taking Senate control, and and then the 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 lines, uh, you know, the the the, the line shifted and crossed um, right around mid May. Um, mm-hmm. What what happened then? What's your interpretation of that? Or you know, am I maybe overstating it because fifty seven percent isn't such a big deal? And so, if you know, a month ago or so, Republicans were up by seven points, and now Democrats are. It's all basically the same thing. Well, I mean, it is all basically a toss-up, but, you know, 7% is, is hardly insignificant, and the margin is, you know, even greater than that. Um, what happened was that we had a lot of polls in Arkansas in particular that showed Democrats performing better, uh, incumbent Senator Mark Pryor performing better than expected. Uh, we had a CBS New York Times poll, for instance, that initially showed uh, Pryor up by 10. There was then an NBC Marist poll, which I think showed him up by 9. My numbers on that might not be exactly right, but before then... Prior was generally thought to be going down. Tom Cotton was thought to have a huge advantage. Um, that was mainly based on the fundamentals, that this is a state that's extremely Republican. Um, it voted, I believe, for Mitt Romney by 24 points in 2012. And the polls, which had, been, which had mainly been from automated firms like PPP or Rasmussen or Harper, had showed a tighter race. And now I think it's clear that this, is a t- this, this race is a toss-up. It's not a race that's decided that leans Republican. And when Arkansas leaned Republican, I think it was fair to say that it was that the Republicans probably had a slight edge in pursuit of the Senate. The Republicans are heavy favorites to take Montana and West Virginia and South Dakota, and then they're modest favorites probably, but only by a slight amount in North Carolina and Louisiana. And so then if you thought that Arkansas leaned Republican, and then you also thought that a state like Alaska was a true toss-up, it, the, the cleanest path to the 50 probably was, was for the Republicans. But now that Arkansas is a toss-up, then you know we're talking about the Republicans needing to clear to, to win some coin flips in order to get it done, rather than having the inside road. How do you frame, kind of in your in your own mind, the, the whole discussion of Senate control? Do, do you view it as a national discussion playing out on local stages, or, or in your mind, are these a series of local state level narratives that somehow add up to a national story? And, and beyond your own kind of personal take on it, then how, how does the model weigh national versus local influences? But but starting, you know, with, with your own, you know, how, how do you view the whole thing? I think that's a great question. I think that historically. Uh, it was a lot more local, uh, and I think we're increasingly moving into the, in the direction where these races are nationalized. And you can see that playing out um, in the numbers. One of the variables in our model is the, how a state voted in recent presidential elections. And that variable 
is much more powerful today than it would have been 15 years ago. You can, for to take a recent example, Blanche Lincoln losing by 20 points in Arkansas in 2010 is not something that probably would have happened even in 1994. She would have received her incumbency, and and you know her the familiarity that voters had there would have been worth more. On the other hand, local factors do matter, and these candidates do still have the ability to significantly outperform um, the national party. You're seeing that in Arkansas, where Mark Pryor, who is a little bit of a legacy candidate, his father was a senator, is is polling near 50% in a state where the president lost by 24 points. Now, these are admittedly only the strongest candidates that are capable of doing that. In North Carolina, for instance, we don't see Kay Hagan doing so well. She doesn't have that sort of legacy with the state's voters. But where that exists, we can see the localized element of these races taking hold. That, that's fascinating. It could be because you you wrote recently, and and I guess maybe this is what you're getting at, um, that it's become far harder to win a Senate race in a state that is be that has preferred the other party in presidential elections. Um, and you're saying it really almost takes an extraordinary circumstance, such as um, you know historic legacy, yeah, for for Landro or um, or or other states. But if you don't have something like that. Um, the, the nationalization has become so great that um, it's pretty hard to, to fight it off if the other party um, won the presidential election. Is that is that right? I think that's a fair assessment. And I think that, the, that a nice illustration of this is in North Carolina. You know, this is a state that voted for Romney by two points in 2012. And historically, we would expect that an incumbent senator in a state as competitive as North Carolina in presidential elections would probably lean towards the Democrat, towards the incumbent senator, um, in an off-year election, because historically the value of being an incumbent senator is pretty considerable. But the polls do not show Kay Hagan up by eight points or something. They show her locked in a dead heat, or maybe even slightly behind among likely voters. And that's because the number of crossover voters has declined significantly over the last decade or over the period over the period in which uh, one might have calculated that we would expect Hagan to win by eight. So, how much does an individual candidate actually matter? I mean, how, how does, how do you start to, and, and maybe there's more, you know, political science as opposed to polling science, but how should we be thinking then about individual candidates when, when so much of the, you know, national politics, national issues come into play? Does the individual candidate matter at this point? Matters a lot. I mean, I think the rule, the, the easy rules that the further you go from a two-party presidential contest, the more the candidates matter. And in the Senate, there are, it's very possible for strong candidates to outperform um, expectations, and it's very possible for weak candidates to underperform them. And I think we've seen a lot of it in recent years. We saw, um, we saw Murdoch go down in Indiana. We saw um, Heidi Heitkamp squeak out a win in North Dakota. We saw what happened with Todd Aiken last time. And you can keep listing even, even more if you want to go back to 2010 with the Christine O'Donnells and um, and share an angle, and those candidates start to, and those candidates really do make a difference. Now they make less of a difference, I think, than they did 15 years ago. I think that, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that in a race against um, Sharon Angle or something in the year um, 1988 or something that Harry Reid only squeaks out a five-point win. Um, I think that a, a candidate who is, is as weak as that probably would have gotten blown out against an incumbent senator. But that doesn't change that the candidates are still making a big difference. And, you know, if you don't believe it, look at what's going on in Arkansas, where, you know, Mark Pryor is running very far ahead of the president. 
and let's talk. Let's go to some of the states. Um, you know, one of the big ones, obviously, uh, Mississippi. Um, and, and you know, you've got the pending runoff there, and you've, you've got uh, you know McDaniel versus uh, Cochran. But on on some level, and, and you wrote this recently as well, from a from a who's going, you know, which party is going to take this seat? Um, you, the the evidence, and you're arguing, I think, in some of what you've written, kind of doesn't matter which of those two win. Um, Mississippi is looking very strong as a, as a Republican um, held seat. Is that right? I think that's right. I don't think there's a state that's harder for Democrats to win in this entire country than Mississippi. Um, this, I mean, you know, it's a state that Obama received 43 percent of the vote in. Therefore, you might think that it's pretty close. But that electorate was 35 or 36 or 37 percent black in 2012. And so Obama might not have even received 10 percent of the white vote. And the reason for that is that half of the electorate in Mississippi, and even more than that in an off-year election, is white evangelical Christian. And that block of voters is going to support the Republican candidate in overwhelming numbers no matter what happens. And if you think that a crazy conservative is going to alienate Mississippi's white evangelical conservative voters, then I think that you're a little mistaken. And, you know, I, I don't even know what they would have to do to make for a Democrat to make significant inroads into that block. And with that big chunk of voters constituting about half of the electorate and then them being supplemented by, uh, by the still very conservative white non-evangelical Christians in Mississippi, it gets really difficult for you to make the leap from 40, for a Democrat to make the leap from 43 to 50. And is that how, uh, I mean, that's, that's not how Democrats are looking at it, of course. Uh, honestly, I don't really know how Democrats are looking at it. I think that if you, uh, you know, you'd have to convince me um, that the candidate was so bad, the, the Republican candidate was so bad that Republican-based voters we're not going to show up. Um, and that's something that's not true in most of the states in this country, even the red states. There's, there are enough persuadable voters where you can, you can conjure up scenarios where in the worst case for the Republican that the Democrat can squeak to 50. But in this case, the worst case for Republicans um, is generally still a win um, because their base is so significant. And then the flip side may be um, Iowa where we, we just had Joni Ernst take the Republican nomination. She's, you know, one of the few uh, candidates, and there, there are a couple of them, but one of the few candidates who's bringing together, who's got both establishment and, call it, Tea Party support. And yet, despite that, and, and you got the Democrat Tom Harkin stepping down there, but, but despite that, despite the candidate who, um, you know, has the establishment and Tea Party, who in a sense is, try, is bringing together that side of the Iowa voting, um, Iowa still leans not, it's not terribly heavily. I think at this point you've got it at, uh, it's, it's around 85% by Leo's count, but it's still leaning Democrat, even though, uh, um, you know, you've got Joni Ernst in, in that seat. Is, is Iowa kind of the flip side of, of what you might be seeing in Mississippi? Iowa's a very different state from Mississippi. Uh, it, you know, Iowa is one of the whiter states in the country. Mississippi has the state, country's largest black population. Mississippi is the country's most polarized state. Iowa has a whole lot of persuadable voters. And I think that Bruce Braley is a pretty strong candidate who's a good fundraiser, um, who has been elected to the House. Joni Ernst is a little bit of an unknown, and she trails in the polls. Um, I also have you know, read, and we'll, it remains to be seen how any of this will play out on the campaign trail, but Ernst has taken some fairly conservative positions that I think um, – sort of lock her in to her position. It's not so much that she can't win with those positions. It's just that given that she's already down and she is not the type of candidate who's extremely well positioned to broaden her appeal, uh, that tends to make me feel more confident in the idea that she's the underdog. 
I will say though that it would be that it's worth waiting to see what the polls look like after um, now that the Republican primary is over. You, you never know um, the extent to which a little extra media attention that comes with closing out a primary and then consolidating your party can can move you a little closer. Most of the polls have shown Braley ahead by a, by a very meaningful margin. If that's still true a month from now, I think that Braley would be in a in a pretty good spot. You know, in thinking about what you were saying about uh, Mississippi as well and about, you know, the need, I mean, for, for Democrats to have a chance, they'd have to, to be a, uh, you know, a Republican candidate who would, you know, do something crazy or, or, or outlandish and, and really throw off, um, you know, all of the other data fighting against it. I mean, there's this whole list of southern states with uh, Senate seats in play, of course, you know, besides Mississippi, you know, Louisiana, North Carolina, you mentioned Kentucky, Georgia, Arkansas, and, you know, even to some extent, Missouri. Um, in most of these, do Democrats have a strategy beyond, you know, because of the data and because of what, you know, what you've seen historically? Um, do, do they have, is there a chance beyond hoping for an outlandish Tea Partier um, to win the Republican nomination? I mean, is there, is there any, you know, kind of hope for them in these, uh, in these states? Well, not all of these states are equal. I mean, Mississippi is, it is an extraordinarily polarized state where, I'm not even sure that the crazy candidate can get it done. And there's certainly no chance that Democrats can win without a crazy candidate. In these other states like Georgia, it's a little different. Georgia has an electorate that occasionally has supported Democrats in statewide contests over the last decade. It's a state where Democrats are meaningfully closer to getting the 50 percent in presidential elections. And it's a state where the Democratic candidate, Michelle Nunn, can sort of draw on an older legacy of Southern Democrats um, because her father was was a very popular senator there. Um, and, you know, as, as we have sort of mentioned a few times in the context of Arkansas, the family name and family legacy matters a lot. And so I think it's possible to imagine how someone like Michelle Nunn in a state that's closer than Mississippi, that's less polarized than Mississippi, and where you have a candidate who can tap into an older Democratic tradition um, might be able to get to 50%. How does the whole trust in government thing play into the models and play into the nationalization of these elections? I mean, you, you see the same polls I do. I mean, trust in government continues to fall. Um, there's a recent millennials poll out of Harvard that, that showed just, uh, you know, how it's dropping there. There are other polls that have been dealing with uh, older voters. D- does that is a shifting national sentiment around the trust in government? Is that something that could throw off a model such as Leo's because it's an evolving trend? It, let, let's say it's true. You know, it's di- and, and it's different today than it has been historically. And and therefore, you know, based, the, you know, basing a model on historical norms and historical data might be a little bit off. I, I'm just kind of curious. I, I've been worrying a lot and thinking a lot about the trust in government question. Um, and, and I'm just curious how you're thinking about that and how, you, how that might fit into, um, you know, Leo and, and the modeling. Um, so I don't think it has very much of a consequence for the model. I think that Leo accounts for national conditions by looking at the generic congressional ballot in which voters are asked whether they prefer a Democrat or Republican to control Congress. And that question has a very good record, um, or a pretty good record at least, of predicting the overall shifts um, in in congressional elections. Um, right now, we see a fairly tight congressional ballot, which tells me that, you know, although people may be far less trusting in government than they used to be, they're not taking it out on one party all that much more than the other. Uh, I would say, though, that you know, and this is just a hypothesis. I don't have very much evidence to back it up. That the decline in trust in government is probably related to the increase in partisanship and polarization. Um, as people have become more distrustful of the, of, of the government that's also coming out 
in terms of being less trustful of the opposing political party. I think it means that, pe- that people are more inclined to blame their traditional opponents um, for the dysfunction. And I think that a consequence of all of this may be um, the growing polarization of the electorate. And the same, and what about in terms of issues? Um, any issues uh, that you're specifically looking at that you think um, really could could make a difference here? I mean, the you know the Affordable Care Act. You know, should Democrats be leading with it? Should Republicans be attacking it? Um, you wrote recently about uh, you know President Obama's recent uh, proposal to reduce carbon emissions and and how that may you know that may not be such a winner for Democrats after all. They might have all the votes. Uh, from that, that they can get any any issues that you look at that you think could actually swing the electorate one way or the other. I think those are the two big issues. I think though that can, that coal has basically already played out. You know, look at West Virginia. That's a state where the Republicans are almost sure to pick up a seat, but it was held by a Democrat um, at the beginning, or it, it remains held by a Democrat. Um, and that's an open contest where you know Rockefeller retired in part because his approval ratings have sunk low um, as a result of the war on coal. And if um, the war on coal had never happened. I don't think that Rockefeller retires, and I think Democrats are favored to win West Virginia, um, or at least it's a ve- it, or at least it's a far tighter matchup than it is right now. Um, so you know, when you, so I think that you know the coal issue is already making a difference. And if the Senate is decided by one seat, I think you could make a very plausible case that climate change politics cost Democrats the Senate. At this point, though, I don't think that there's very much more for Democrats to lose. West Virginia is gone, so hurting Democrats in West Virginia doesn't do any more damage. Um, healthcare is an issue that I think the Republicans um, really need because it sort of seemed to me in 2010, and this is unscientific, but it really, it, but I, I had the impression that 2010 was acting as like a polarization magnifier, that it was such an, that it was an issue that broke really closely along partisan lines. And then it was locking everyone into their candidate. So you might be a Republican that would have otherwise considered voting for a Democrat, but once you found out they were on the wrong side of health care, then you could no longer tolerate the idea of voting for that Democrat. And so that would be really helpful for Republicans if it was playing out like that in a state like Arkansas or Louisiana. Um, but it just doesn't look like it at the moment. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that the issue is as potent as it was four years ago. If Republicans could revive that, it would certainly improve their odds, though. And just to close out, Nate, um, and this, uh, I believe, might be the most important uh, issue for you personally. If come the fall, Leo spits out an NFL Super Bowl champion prediction that does not have the Seattle Seahawks winning at all, um, are you willing to just throw out the whole Leo thing and say that it's, uh, you know, it's just garbage and can't predict anything? Um, if it doesn't predict the Seattle Seahawks to win, the Super Bowl, I think we would probably have to reprogram it, and I'm not sure I would allow the the Times to publish a model that was clearly based on such flawed assumptions. If the model is wrong about the Senate, on the other hand, I think that would mainly be a result of an accurate public polling. Um, the model, by the end of the day, is heavily dependent on the polls, um, and that's what the final prediction is going to be. If you lead in the polls, Leo is going to predict that you win the election on November 5th or whatever it is this year. Um, and if the polls are wrong, we'll be wrong. Yeah. Okay. And as a as a displaced uh, Northwesterner, you wouldn't you wouldn't fix the the Leo program so that it uh, you know was weighted more heavily toward the Seahawks, would you? I, I I'll be honest. I don't think that I could be a fair journalist covering <laughs> um, covering Seattle sports or maybe the Northwest more generally. So um, I, I can't deny the possibility that I would that I would either over that I would you know intentionally rig the model or that my prejudices would so heavily influenced the way I constructed such a model that it would no longer be reliable.
Okay, well, we'll 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 watch carefully your NFL coverage, which uh, <laughs> which would only mean you would be adding to everything else that you do at the New York Times. Uh, Nate Cohn, reporter for really the the New York Times' new um, hottest and and just most fascinating area, the Upshot. Um, you guys and and David, I mean, are, are doing just a unbelievable job um, every day. There's just an incredible amount of material to to read and to to follow and to look at. Uh, Nate covers elections, polling, and demographics, and not yet the NFL. Nate, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.